0: ladies and gentlemen you've heard their point now hear the counterpoint on libertarian counterpoint podcasts and thank you for joining us this evening we have a special conversation with my friend and colleague oscar herrera oscar last time we got to talk to you was it was almost a year ago now wasn't it and we were kind of in the dog days of that campaign and you are now a seasoned politician? Because you had a three year it was almost a three year campaign, wasn't it?
1: Um a little years. over two.
0: Uh,
1: uh, yeah, no. I mean I thought about it for a long time, but no, I was not into running for that long.
0: <laughs> no, once you start consider I consider when once you start seriously thinking about it, it becomes a weight on your head, and that's when I start. Yeah. So whenever you start thinking about it, yeah. that's when I that's when I personally start the clock. So yeah, so, well, so my clock is a little bit longer than other people's. You know, I don't wait for the paperwork, I wait when you start mentally working on yourself because that's when the weight starts to hit you.
1: Yeah, I would say a good two and a half years then.
0: So a good two and a half year run. That's that's a long time. Mine was about a year, you know. I because I did kind of the short one, no one else was running against my opponent, and so we did a quick write-in campaign, you know, slipped in the top two and got to be on the the, the candidacy. Very few libertarians get to achieve their ultimate goal. You know, I got about 26% in a two-person race. It's hard to know this year how well that is. (laughs) You know, other libertarians in California got about 11%, but they were in a more difficult district than I was. So it's hard to know if I got, you know, the anti-vote
1: or, you know, it's just hard to know. So where'd you end up? I I got 3.2% of the vote, Mm -hmm. which is... Which was the average across all Ohio uh candidates, was above three point percent. Kinda wish the top of the ticket got three percent because that would have retained his ballot access. But whatever. I mean, we're we're not afraid of the work. <laughs> mm-hmm
0: yeah clearly uh, Oscar's Oscar's never been afraid of the work and which brings us to actually my other point i you, you announced yesterday that you are you joined the national guard the ohio national guard congratulations uh, you've always been a young man who looked like he wanted something wanted to help his community for more than himself and i think you know anything anybody does to kind of go down that path i, I always you know The National Guard, military, is I'm far too much of a hippie for that. So people who can actually do that, you know, I appreciate, you know, we need those kind of things.
1: Yeah. It's something I've been wanting to do for years. Um, I tried when I was 17, 18, didn't pass the physical component of it. Uh, Now that I'm a little bit older, wiser, (laughs) not still young at heart and in age, but it was, I mean, post-election life kind of gives you some clarity, too. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I was like, you know what? I need something to motivate me, keep me disciplined, because it's kind of when you're in campaign mode, uh, that keeps you accountable, disciplined and everything. And now that I'm kind of free from that constraint in a way, uh, I needed something that would give me like one discipline training, but also just uh, consistency throughout the next few years. So, cause when, like, I don't know for you, but like there was stuff I had to do on a weekly basis on the campaign trail and my mindset was so I have to do this on a Thursday and mm-hmm. to the point where like now let's say it's January. Now there's my mindset still there that I'm like, I could be at the gym and like, oh, I can't stay another half hour because I have to do this. I'm like, oh wait, that's over with <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, so well, that that is that is true. The campaign, the campaign trail is a it's a tough task. And especially when you've been on it for a long time, even, you know, my I figure mine's short. I watched a lot of you guys you know, out there working for these years running the campaigns for literally years. I'm going, I don't know how y'all do it. You know, <laughs> I really don't. So I appreciate you guys. It takes the, the energy of youth. I don't know how people my age are out there running for for office. It's a physical and mental drain. And speaking of that mental drain, when the campaign was over and that weight was lifted, for me, it took a while for me to kind of readjust back to normal life. Did you have kind of that same problem?
1: Yeah, I did. It was like the day of the election, I was very nervous. Uh, Early numbers weren't good for me. So I was kind of, you beat yourself up because you're like, I could have done this. I could have done that. A little bit more effort, but. At the end of the day, I just told myself, you know, I did the best I could, Uh, first campaign ever, um, virtually no name recognition going in, obviously, uh, compared to my other two opponents who are a little bit more established in the community. And I'm just like, you know what, 3%, it's a start. It's, It's not the number I wanted, but it's a start for greater things. And, you know, it was just weird having a lot of open time. Because you're not doing interviews, you're not doing podcasts, you're not calling people, knocking doors. So it's like adjusting yourself to pretty much another, it's like losing a job. Like, what do you do now? <laughs> yeah, kind of,
0: because you lose. There's this whole section of your thought process that no longer has to function. You no longer have to always think like a politician. Now, I've got you know the TV show, and I'm chair of the Libertarian Party, and you, know, you don't have any of that to kind of fill some of that but I ended up having to take a break. I ended up, I kind of did kind of my minimal political activities for about what, six, almost two months. I think I almost ended up having to take a break. And part of that was just so I can absorb the experience and kind of learn some lessons. As like, you know, what have I learned? Because I've learned that, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about my community. I learned a lot about how politics actually works versus how we all kind of think it works, and, you know, and and trying to kind of absorb all that and take your lessons. And so you can go back and you can talk to, you know in our case, fellow libertarians or your community and say, well, what have we learned? Like one of the things that struck me is that during my campaign, my biggest issues that kind of resonated had nothing to do with the pandemic. It had nothing to do with, with racial justice, despite those being big, huge issues. It was basics. It was transparency and accountability from, from uh, bureaucracy. And it was water issues. My, the single biggest issue I had was basic issues with the water board and and issues with transparency. Just wanting to know what's going on. Mm-hmm. And those were the two single biggest issues in my campaign. So, what did you kind of learn about something like that?
1: Uh, I think on the campaign side, I learned that I need to needed to be more reliant on other people and just Mm -hmm. have a little bit more hands off approach. I'm very, I like to micromanage a lot. Like I like to have my input in every little thing. That's just how I am. Uh, But coming back, I'm like, maybe I should have just trusted uh, the people in my campaign a little bit more on just like free, a little bit more free reign on some stuff. But uh, for next time, I'll remember that. Um, But like on the issue side, like, it was very hard to like, I'm pre- I was the first libertarian. A lot of people ran into, mm-hmm. uh, if you probably ran into that same, uh, circumstances, they're like, what's a libertarian? And you do your best to explain. And in my, um, public appearances, I would always do, um, like, Hey, my name's Oscar, I'm the libertarian candidate. Uh, if you don't know what a libertarian is. And I just ran out over key issues. Do you believe in economic prosperity? Yes. Do you believe in individual liberty? Yes. And just two or three other points. I'm like, all right, since all of you guys raised your hands, you're all libertarians now, and I look forward to your vote in November. <laughs> and I got a like, really good response to that. I got a few people from the Democrats and Republicans saying yes to my question. I got one of my opponents to admit he was a libertarian. And when I saw that, I'm like, and I see my Republican opponent admits to being a libertarian, and I'm looking forward to him dropping out and endorsing me. <laughs> <laughs> just a little little jab in a little there. place
0: of fun yeah yeah, yeah.
1: Just, just to like add some levity to the room and well, especially was, this like, year right
0: this year yeah. was so toxic if we if libertarians was. had if libertarians couldn't be the adults in the room and have some fun and and you know be the non-toxic part of the environment we were doing something wrong right if we kind of joined the toxic part of the politics i think we were doing something wrong that was actually for me if one of the best parts of being about Libertarian this last year is that for the most part, we didn't take part in the toxic nature of the politics. It's not not saying we didn't participate in any cause that would be a lie, right? We did have some and we're human. You know, we, we get caught up in our emotions just like anybody else. And you have moments or days where you say things or you behave in ways where a week later you're going, you know, <laughs> I yeah. probably should have approached that differently. <laughs> And as a and as a campaign, when you're running a campaign, that's very dangerous because I know I do. I don't know if you saw I did videos often three, four times a week, short five, 10 minute videos. And I'd have a little thing. OK, I'm going to get up there and talk about something today. And then when the camera was gone, she'd point to me and I would talk about something completely different because <laughs> whatever was on my mind. And so I had very difficult time with that political filter. Now, luckily, I have the public access filter from you know my TV training, and so I keep everything kind of. I don't cross any boundaries. But someone who didn't have that public access TV training could end up in a trouble finding themselves. Did you find having to censor? It's not even censor is probably the wrong word. To manage your words more carefully oh, yeah. was that was was
1: was that a challenge for you? I it was somewhat of a challenge because like especially part of what i was kind of preaching for lack of a better term was like we need to be better hold our politicians more accountable that they're responsible for their words and we're seeing that now especially with uh the capitol hill raid that went on Mm -hmm. that i was very mindful of like exactly of every single word i said because like at the end of the day i'm a public figure And so what I say matters a little bit more than the average person. So you have to really sit back and reflect, have a little bit of uh, prudence in a way, Mm. because your words do mean something. And I didn't want anything to be taken the wrong way. Like any statements I wrote, like I really meditated on. Uh, Interviews, like, um, I hate that I wasn't as quick say something but at the same time i was thinking how the best way i could say this because you don't want to give um anyone any ammunition against you as well i mean so if people do have fault with what you say if you're sure about it's the right thing you could just say what exactly do you have fault with and if they can't say it then you did your job now sometimes people would say you could have said this a little bit better there's always that but
0: yeah, or the people write. can disagree, but that's fine. Yeah. You know, honorable people can have honorable disagreements, right? Yeah, well, you, you're not. it's not a world where, as long as you're not toxic, then we can always have a discussion. It's when things get toxic, and and is when our discussions try to disintegrate, I shall we say, into this point where you're not. We're not even talking politically. We're not even talking to each other anymore. We're talking past each other. We're talking at each other, and as the third party candidates and anybody outside of the political system, it's, you know, we're going to have to be the ones to say, you know what, we're just not going to participate in that. We're going to go over here. We're going to kind of do our thing the right way and just hope we attract people who are just getting tired of that. Because I don't think as libertarians, green parties, peace and freedom party, regardless of what your politicians are, what, what your political policies are is this toxic nature, this nature where we, we are so afraid of what our fellow Americans are going to do. We no longer talk to them to find out what they actually want to do. We kind of create this sense of of what we think they want to do. And I was, I was watching a Jordan Peterson lecture the other day, one of his old class lectures. I mean, the literally two hour long uh, psychology class. And he was talking about how instinctively what we like to do is as people is we like to take someone's argument and we create the weakest version of it as possible. And then we knock it down. That's what the straw man argument is. And then we go and we knock it down and yay, we we knock down their weakest part of the argument rather than trying to figure out what they're actually trying to say and then repeat it back to them stronger. And then say, but here's why I disagree with it. So instead of fighting the weakest version of their argument we're fighting the best version of their argument. And one of the ways I've tried to do that in my campaign is rather than talk libertarians we like to talk a lot about localism, right? But when we talk about localism, other people don't hear us. So what I switched it here. I've called it organic communities. It's the exact same thing as localism, but it's said in a way that the people in my neighborhood can hear it. Mm-hmm. So instead of talking past them, localism, we need limited government, we need small government, I'm saying we needed organic communities where people of a, of small neighborhoods get to have the determination of what happens in their neighborhoods. And it's the same. It's the same argument, but it's said in a way that they can understand. It's that's how we fight gentrification. And so for me, finding a way to communicate with the wider audience in a non-libertarian way, but also using libertarian principles behind it. Did you ever find a way to kind of do that? Uh, if if you can follow that, I know that was kind of a long-winded.
1: No, I, I get away. what you're trying to say. Like I. I found myself using, in a way, the language that Republicans use and Democrats use. Because one, I was, I've been in both camps in a way politically, mm-hmm. so I kind of understand when, um, for example, like rule of law, what does that mean? And for the Republicans, because I know they love saying that. And then for Democrats, what does on diversity, racism, and all that stuff? Talk their point. And I found it very fruitful because we kind of were on the same page about uh, the proper role of the law and then on the issue of racism and having minorities participate. And they kind of got behind all that because I was speaking their language. And I wasn't, I'm not saying I'm a great libertarian spokesperson where I could tell you every little fine detail about libertarianism, but I found great success talking to established democrats and established republicans because i'm like i get their language i know what they're talking about and approached it on their side like for example uh we got asked about i got asked about criminal justice reform from a republican he's like oh what about this defund the police stuff because that's all he knew and i'm like well i get what they're and i tried to explain the left perspective on defund the police and i told him Mm -hmm well, this is the proper role of the police. And I gave him like a one minute elevator pitch and he was like, I could get behind that. I like what you're saying. You're making sense. And, yeah. and then he starts bashing the other side and I'm just like, whatever. Like, <laughs> and Then they
0: go back to the role with their old habits. It's like defund yeah. the police. It's not really defunding the police. It's demilitarizing them and then, mm-hmm. and then shifting the money they no longer need to the services that help prevent the, the bigger things. It's not like you're taking money away. You're, you're just, it's no longer needed because you don't have to pay for the, you know, the armored cars and the, <laughs> and all this, and SWAT teams and all these various things. You don't, you don't need a whole bunch of them. You only need a handful of these things. And so you actually save a lot of money by demilitarizing the police. And you also inc- would help, you know, with the relationship between the police and the public by having simpler, more, laws that are able to follow. So the police can even know, the police don't even know what the laws are. How, you know, we don't know what the laws are. There's so many of, there's so many of them. What was it? There was a book 10 years ago that you, you accidentally committed three felonies a day. The average person accidentally commits three felonies a day. And it's got to be worse by now. <laughs> Probably up to five now. And then and we talk about rule of law. You know, my always question when people talk to me about rule of law is, you know, in the United States, the difference between the United States and other countries, of when it comes to the rule of law is the United States for all other countries for all of time, the average citizen has always had to abide by the rule of law. The average citizen has never gotten out of the rule of law. The difference in the United States was the government and their officials were supposed to be held accountable to the rule of law. They weren't supposed to have a different set of rules and that's what has been lost. And so if the, one of the first things you need to do to regain some trust among the political class, be it police or the politicians, is actually start reinforcing that rule of law on the political class. Mm -hmm. I think that's you know, that goes back right back to the transparency issue where we hit is that people are tired of it's like animal farm. It's like, you know, they're the pigs and we're everybody
1: else. (laughs) Some animals are more equal than others. (laughs) Yeah,
0: all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. And it's it's that frustration. Even people yep. who have, who are politically different than me, who had no intent on voting for me, would agree with me on the need for even a radical transparency, a radical view on transparency. My actually single biggest video was radical transparency. It was when I sat there and had to talk about radical transparency and that accountability does not necessarily mean punishment. It means making sure you understand what the hell happened so you can fix it. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, you can't fix it until you understand what actually happened and you can't actually understand what happened until you hold yourself accountable. It's not actually about holding other people accountable. It's holding yourself accountable and by holding yourself accountable and telling the public that, here, look, this is what I did to screw up. And here's what we're going to do to kind of work our way through it. That builds trust. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about you, but like EDD here in California, there's 1.4 million of us who haven't had an unemployment check in six weeks. And... And we've got, I've got libertarians who are coming to me saying, what are we supposed to do? You know, I've maxed out my credit cards. I've avoided, you know, going on public aid, but they've closed my businesses down. I can't, you know, I'm, I'm at the end of my rope and now I'm supposed to trust this. (laughs) And so, you know, going, well, you've paid all this money in, so don't feel bad about getting it. You've paid the money in for the system, right? And they're, they're going to give it to you anyway. So you might as well take it. They destroyed your business. They took, and this is compensation. So don't feel guilty. If you want to feel anything, feel that they're not giving you back enough. <laughs> okay, So if, if you're going to do that, they have, they're not recompensating you enough if you're going to feel angry. And and I get that you're going to be disappointed and you're going to be reluctant to, to, to get to the services that you pay for. But as a politician, as a libertarian politician, we do have that issue because we have to represent everybody. That includes libertarians who are extremely you know, reluctant to interface with government. And that includes people who want the government or have become dependent on government. And we have to help them too. And trying to find that line as a libertarian is difficult because we all want to go where the end game of libertarianism is right. We, you know, I do too, but how do the heck do we actually get there without hurting people? Yeah. You can't just pull the rug out from under people. And that's actually the hardest part of the discussion is I've, I've trying to have with people is that, no most libertarian politicians don't want to just flip a switch and throw people out we want to unwind this thing and did you have to have that kind of conversation and did you has your view on that kind of evolved
1: um i really haven't had that welfare discussion with anyone on the campaign trail thankfully because that is one because a lot of people here are reliant on aid food stamps uh, health medicaid especially the being an older generation the, the majority of the people that live here so they're on the medicare and medicaid and all that so it's to tell them like y'all you shouldn't have access to these services and then their automatic response is like well i paid into it with my taxes, so i should get and i mean they make a compelling obviously if you pay into something you should get something in return so and then i always say well we could reform it so we can make it cheaper so it costs less for you and also better quality and all that but yeah there's always going to be a social safety net that's something that's never going to go away at least in my lifetime is it going to take different forms i believe so i think ubi is gaining a lot of steam recently like thanks to andrew yang and his proposal and the stimulus checks we've been receiving Um, and i think A complete overhaul of welfare and replace it with ubi seems like the most logical thing that's going to happen in my opinion Mm -hmm. um just because one it's just blanket to every american that qualifies just like here's one check a month boom versus all these hoops and ladders different levels of of monetary uh, aid that people are getting some people get like let's say 200 dollars a month others get like a thousand dollars a month and so just blanket let's say 1200
0: yeah it simplifies the process right if you're going to do it make it simple you know it's
1: like oh and then kind of i always found it in a way odd and kind of infuriating that the more kids you have the more aid you get so it kind of encourages that and people are going to say, like, you sound like a conservative when you say that. Like, you just don't want to feed all these kids. And I'm like, yes. Yeah. I mean, some people have kids that they can't feed and whatever. But we should also not encourage <laughs> just popping out babies so you can receive more money.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's that competing morality thing, right? You've got yeah. this thing. You want to help people, and you don't really have a problem with it. But at the same time, you can see the, the potential moral hazard. And how often it happen- actually happens, it's hard to know. But you can yeah. see that potential moral hazard. And so it's just you go and sitting there going, eh? You know, you really don't know what to do about it. It's it's that that competing morality it, that, and here, in, for some strange reason, that came up with a lot in my campaign is is how do we deal with these competing moralities? Whether it was CPS, you're dealing with the, you know CPS because you've got CPS becomes abusive and incompetent at the same time, and so how do you deal with that? And that's actually one of the most difficult things. Is there's no good answer. There's literally no good answer in dealing with like child protection services. Cause you do need some form of child protection services and they do have a history of becoming abusive. How the heck do you, how do you do you resolve those two? And yeah. you know, it's, there's no, there's literally no good answer. I know people who work inside of CPS. I've kind of been on both sides of the, of the issues I've seen, you know, all sides, literally all sides of that issue. And, so I'm going, there's no good answer. And I'm sitting here trying to talk to people, you know, talk to voters about it and be honest with them. I say, look, there's no good answer. All we can really do is put the best policies in place and make sure that we mine those policies to a T and adjust them as needed. And, you know, that's really all we can do. And keep an eye on it because you can't even have transparency in CPS because you're dealing with children and families. And so the oversight has to be done a level above. And so it makes it even harder to oversight, but there's no other way to do it. And so when we think all this way through, and what I found is that people were happy I was willing to have the difficult conversation. Even though I didn't have any answers for them, they were happy I was was willing to sit there and say, look, here's the problems we're facing. And here's why this is so difficult to get answers for because there's no freaking good answers. And if anybody tries to tell you there's a silver bullet answer, they're lying to you. And, and you go through and here's the problems and just being willing to tell people what the real problems were and that there was no good solution. They were actually, I wouldn't get to say happy about it, but they were satisfied.
1: Mm-hmm. And well, the competing morality is the hardest thing because it's like, it's at the end of the day, it's like what I do in those situations, like what causes the least amount of harm and, at the end of the day that's what libertarians are about the least amount of harm on the individual and on cps like yeah i i've I've activist friends on facebook that are very in tune to the cps all these reforms and everything you're like oh man there's these horror stories after horror stories and you're like yeah maybe it would be good to abolish it and then you see horror stories that that happens to children and you're like yeah we do need some mechanism in place to protect them protect our families, the most vulnerable in our society and all that.
0: Yeah. I've been reading a book um, for those of you who might be interested It's the foster care handbook. Oh man, I'll have to put the link in the thing. And the author, she went through the foster care system and she wishes she has been pulled out of her family sooner. And we can't ignore that experience either. And so there's the, the reality is both things can be true. And how do we solve this problem? And that's the tough thing for politicians. And I think that's where the area where libertarians can live. If we want to make some, if libertarians really want to make some, make some, hay, you know, you got to go where no one else is working. It's kind of like the money ball of politics. Hey, don't do what everybody else is doing. Do what they're not doing. And so if they're not being open, honest, and having real discussions, then we need to sit there and be open, honest, and having real discussions. If they're being toxic, we need to be loving. If, you know, and luckily, that's our nature anyway. We don't want to be toxic. We don't like that. I mean, yeah, okay, we've got our, you know, our uh, edge lords and whatever they want to call themselves.
1: Yeah, we, we got a, our cast characters. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, we've
0: got talking. the group, but for the most part, they're just out for laughs. They're not actually out being toxic. Now, you can say it reaches a toxic level, but for the most part, they're just out for laughs.
1: But yeah, I, I think the LP. From what i've seen especially in like the last two years has been really good at accountability and keeping everyone in check uh, especially seeing how much more high profile we're becoming especially in the wake of the 16 election and i think partly is because of the leadership we've experienced with uh joe bishop henchman and the likes of them such we have a good lnc and i've been noticing a better um uh, there, obviously there's always going to be toxicity, but like it's better handled now it's not there's no risk of it getting out and affecting our public perception as much as i say other years but we've been pretty good at managing all that uh, a lot more responsibility i think people are starting to get the weight of what a political party can be so they're kind of restraining themselves from being those edgelords and detriments the party yeah
0: well the more of us that run for office the more of us who become politicians rather than activists I mm-hmm. think it it becomes the party will become more of a political party I've always said you know that we have the United States not just the libertarians has an activist problem is activists drive far too much of the conversation which driving the conversation is kind of one thing but they drive far too much of the policy like here in California activists, You essentially run the state, you know, Democrat activists, they run the state. It's not Democrat politicians that run the state. It's the activists that run the state. And that's a problem because politicians by their nature, they think about all the various competing moralities and whether they may land on one side or the other more often, you know, they're actually taking the time to to contemplate it. Uh, Activists, they don't think about it. They think about whatever they're activating about and, you know, anything else kind of becomes secondary. Like it's AB five here. This whole gig worker laws, right? I there was the national act. They've got a national act that they want to do now. They're talking about the AB five national act. It's where they makes it makes it very hard to be an independent contractor. And no matter how many times independent contractors saying you guys aren't focusing on what we want, it says, well, you should want to be an employee. We don't want to be an employee. These but these big evil corporations are are abusing you no, we don't want to be part of the big evil corporation. That's why we're independent contractors. We just want their money. (laughs) We don't want to be tied to them. We just want their money and they wouldn't listen. And they say, well, but being an employee is better. No, it's not, you know?
1: Not always,
0: (laughs) you know? And if it's, there's times when it is, if you want to be an employee, great, but don't force those of us who don't want to be an employee into being an employee. And so that kind of, for me, I say there's an activist problem and how we deal with that act. And and problem is probably too strong of a word because there's nothing inherently wrong with being an activist. Mm. It's it's when there's too many activists in the kitchen, right? You need a few activists in the kitchen. You need them. That's what the experiment, they help you, you know, they create and make your food better. They tell you what you've done wrong, but you need the the main chefs to do the main cooking. You, you know, you need people who are not to be activists to do the cooking. And yeah, as... So we all talk about this uh, the issues with why is politics so toxic? Well, you know, if you have a bunch of activists running politics, you're going to get a toxic political nature. It's just kind of uh,
1: Yeah, cuz the activists are very emotionally driven, they make the emotional cases and then they want emotional policy. I mean, it makes sense. Look, when you're trying to engage the everyday voter, what's the easiest way to do that? Engage their emotions, yeah, and not much reason. But whereas politicians, different mindset. You have to very legal, very rigid standards. There's already precedents in place, and we have to think about those. Where in activism, just rally the troops, get them behind the cause, and force public pressure on the issue. Whereas politicians are like, all right, obviously they have to listen to public pressure because. That's their job. They have to listen to the people. But it has to be very logical, makes sense, uh, as idealistic as that sounds. Because sometimes.
0: Yeah, well, it's one of the things. It's literally impossible, right? You can't actually serve all the people. But you can listen to them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's what I always say. You can't do what everything wants. It's not possible. But you can listen to everybody. You can make everybody feel heard. Mm-hmm. And the the thing that irritates me enough is you get, like, activists to say, we are the 99%. Well, no, you're not. You, you clearly aren't speaking for
1: 99% of the people. <laughs> and so. And, yeah. <laughs> and especially like 99% of what? in what context? <laughs> like of America, maybe, but of the world you are in the 1%. If you, yeah. make, I think it's like, if you make over 3000, it's a very low number that if you make over this amount of money, you're already in the 1% of the whole world because just of, how many people live in absolute poverty? It's like that run. Like they're like, oh, we're oppressed here. Yeah. Try living on dollars a day. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Our 99% is the 1% worldwide. Yeah,
1: yeah it really is. It's, 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 it's kind like, of. A, a, at what scale are we talking that here? Like, but it's not
0: even, it's, it's like we speak for workers. Like, No, you don't. You speak for union workers or you speak for your group. Like I can't sit here and say, I speak for everybody in Sacramento County. I can speak for the libertarians of Sacramento County. I can maybe make an argument. I speak for the 50,000 people who voted for me, at least for a short period of time. That's a tenuous argument at best, but I can, you know, you can at least have some argument to it, but that's it. I can't say I speak for any more than that. It's because that's it. I'm chair of the libertarian party of Sacramento County. I can speak for the libertarians of Sacramento County. That's it. That's all I get to speak for.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, it's here. like I could speak for the 3.2 percent of people who voted for me. Um, at the end of the day, you can only speak for yourself. I say um, like we're all super individualistic, like you and I have different needs, different wants, different goals politically. And I can't say, oh, I speak for James here. Like he's a libertarian. I'm speaking for him. Maybe on libertarian issues, maybe. Because well, yeah, right. Because <laughs> maybe one day you're like, Oster's not a real libertarian. <laughs> we'll get into those arguments.
0: Libertarians uh, can't agree on the color blue. I <laughs> it's actually teal. <laughs> That's not blue. <laughs> That's the um, sky of the desert. Or de- desert sky or something. Yeah, who knows? We can't agree on anything. And if we do find something, if we do agree on something, they'll talk about it until they find something about it to disagree on. It's just our nature. Okay, so what did you learn about yourself, Oscar? we got a few minutes before we all let you go. What did you learn about yourself? I learned that, you know, my journey is not over. I'd kind of thought I'd become, I went from a person who had been homebound, literally 15 years ago, I couldn't leave the house. And now I run for office, have you know, host of TV shows, and do all that kind of thing. And I learned that I was much more ready for this type of thing than I was than I thought I was. Mm-hmm. And I learned that I didn't have to work as hard as I thought I was going to have to to slip into that mm-hmm. uh, politician mindset. Okay. So you know, at the end of the day, when you kind of reflect back on your journey, did you what did you learn about yourself?
1: that I'm capable of more things than I originally thought of. Cause I always viewed my, I've always been the quiet guy back of the classroom, just minding his own business. And now I have to be the politician up front, the leader of the group, the, the spokesperson. And I always hated public speaking, but I did one event, um, like in October and I wasn't prepared at all for this. I hype myself up listening to speeches I know, like I listened to a, re- a redemption of Alexander the Great's opus speech, a lot of Winston Churchill, a lot of Reagan. Winston Churchill and Ronald Reagan, I consider my uh, speaker role models. I just love the way they speak. And I always say about Ronald Reagan, regardless of his, your views of his politics, you can't help but be stirred to emotion by his speeches. And that's kind of what I aspire to. So, and then I the, had the mayor of the city come up to me and it's like, you know what? I can't believe, how old are you? 24 at the time. I'm like, like, what? 24 and you're already out speaking all these people who've been in politics for like years and decades. And I realized then uh, that I was finding my voice, uh, my passion, what I was good at, and that was public speaking something I always hated so I was like well, I overcame some fears in that regard uh, not to be afraid to put my voice out there not to be afraid to take charge take lead um, that I actually am capable of change in whatever capacity that people actually do look up to me and they still do it's weird getting stopped still at the street on the street like Hey, you're off here. You ran for office. Yeah, I voted for you. It's nice to actually meet you now. (laughs) So it's not to be afraid uh, that I am capable of these things to um, be out there, be not so afraid of taking the charge and standing up. And really, the big thing was just finding my voice and utilizing it. And I don't think this is going to be the last time I run for office. I'll probably give it another four years. Take a good break. <laughs> Take a
0: break. Consider make you. You know. Yeah. No. That's. It's. You've, no. Go ahead.
1: Really, please. And, oh, and really establish myself as a presence like in some way or form in the community. Obviously, still comment on political happenings in Ohio and the community, and maybe go again in four years for state rep. I think that's a. It was a good start, and I think it is still remains a good start for politics next time i run i'll be closer to 30. so a little bit more realistic of an age for a state representative than 24 even though there's the next youngest one is 25 i believe so if i won i would have been the youngest person there but that's behind me now
0: yeah well it's a great uh, learning experience right
1: yeah yeah it definitely is um i think it just it really brought me out of this little shell i was in and I'm happy it did because now I'm just like looking back to life before the election I'm like yeah I can't return to that I like this a little bit too much not in a narcissistic like I love the attention way but we all love the attention anyway <laughs> but it's more like I I enjoy talking to voters engaging with people seeing what they're about and what matters to them
0: yeah well you're a different Oscar now yeah you're you're a, a vastly different Oscar. You've kind of gone through an experience that you carried a weight for an extended period of time. It's not like you did it for a few months. You carried a a, a weight for an extended period of time. You'd learned a lot from it and you became a, a solid member of your community, a leader in your community. If we want to use that, you know, leader or representative, I prefer the term representative rather than leader, but you've become a representative of your community. And you know, that's, something that's, there's weight to that. There's what, what's the word? Gravitas to that. You've, you're no longer Oscar Herrera, the young kid, you're Oscar Herrera, the accomplished man. And I think that's a, you know, I, you should be applauded. I applaud any young person. At, at 24 year old, I was raising kids and, you know, working three jobs. So, you know, it is what it is. It's its own burden, right? <laughs> and so you took a different burden is trying to, you know, make your community better. And if you had something to give to young people in their early twenties who are out watching what's going on in the world today, regardless of their politics, whatever their politics is, what kind of advice would you maybe give them if they're considering, you know, diving more into their politics?
1: So like, I should say, go for it. Don't be afraid. I mean, I was very afraid at the start of it, but you find some courage in the midst of it and just take that first step, because after that, it just snowballs. Is there going to be moments when you feel like giving up? Of course. There's been moments, in like two or three times in my campaign, that I seriously considered dropping out, but I already committed to it, and I was like, you know what, there's people who invested in this, and I don't want to let them down, and I don't want to let myself down, uh, but yeah, anyone, because I got involved in politics when I was 17, um, helped campaigns, not just get get to it, get to work there's always something um, that's pretty much all I have to say because
0: yeah, well the, there's value in the experience if yeah. nothing else there's value in the experience and you know for me it's there's nothing to be afraid of and the worst thing that can happen is you can say something stupid and destroy your political career that's literally the worst thing that can happen and so
1: <laughs> you know and you could bounce back
0: <laughs> yeah that, and if you're young you can bounce back from that you know if you're old like me it, you know it ends your career because I'm 50 and there's no time to bounce back. But if you're young, you can bounce back. You can rebuild it. And so, but even if even if you're old and 50 like me, there's nothing to be afraid of. I don't have a political career. So if I say something stupid and destroy my political career, I didn't have one. And so there's, you know, you didn't have one before. So there's literally nothing to be afraid of. And yeah. your engagement can only help you and your community. And so I think if there's a lesson to be learned from uh, from my run for office, it's that it's good for yourself, and anything that's good for yourself ultimately becomes good for your family and your community. And, you know, anytime you can learn, mm-hmm. learn something. Um, now, one more question. Is there anything about the game of politics that surprised you? I was surprised at how bad the grift was in, in, in politics. Like, my, I, I spent $3,400, something like that. My opponent raised nine hundred dollars didn't have to spend any of it. I think that was 600 grand. Sorry. 900 was a guy I was helping out and didn't have to spend a dime because you know, he's an incumbent name recognition and all that. And so are going, why are we raising money? Why are people donating money to a candidate that doesn't need any? And so, you know, I learned a lot about grift in kind of in tracking down how that thing works. What did you learn about
1: well, the thing about grift? It's like, there are some people who were attaching themselves to mostly on the Republican side, uh, but. Everyone was attaching themselves to like the bigger leagues, like, like, like. Oh, this person's attached to this, like Trump or Biden. They're just attaching themselves to bigger names because obviously that it, it helps out a lot. But also, uh, how well connected everyone is. Like Democrats, Republicans are like they, they love to play the theater. They're against each other, but going to these events, they're buddy and buddy. It's like I knew that going in, but just. Like they were talking to each other like they knew each other for years, and obviously, smaller towns you do, but it's just like re- th- once the curtain's gone, every c- curtain's closed behind the stage, everyone's buddy buddy, and I just like, <laughs> it surprised me how but like friendly everyone is. There was like, like they were sparring on stage, but come back, they were giving each other high hugs, high fives, hey, good to see you, Bill, and all that. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh my god. And, 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 like, <laughs>
0: <laughs> i think mean, the world is but a stage <laughs> the world,
1: yeah exactly i it just made it realize that even more once you're in there and especially as outsider i was i couldn't just go up to people like they could so it's like oh man i really need to like get connected with these people <laughs> yeah so, that, this, it's crazy
0: it is crazy yeah well for me the the grift was is strange because i was talking to uh i was talking to somebody he said you know i just got like four of the same mailers from a, a particular political candidate on the same day the exact same mailer on the exact same day so, so well why are you wasting money you know from a marketing perspective the way they do mailers and all this stuff doesn't make any sense yeah it doesn't make it you're, you're literally throwing money away so why would you be throwing money away i oh, well wait a minute you're paying a printer that printer has get and that same printer probably does a lot of printing for the does a lot of printing for that particular party in the area then that printer gives campaign contributions back to the party or their camp. It's all a big grift. And it's not even a deliberate grift. A lot of it's an accidental grift. You end up accidentally getting loyalty to a politician or party because they give you legitimate business. Like, you know, it's a legitimate printing business. Maybe you're a lean Democrat anyway, but after five, six years of being the printer for that particular party, well, you've now got an economic incentive to help that party. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, there's nothing wrong with it, but it's it's kind of an unintentional grift. It's unintentional corruption. And it it's leads to this kind of weird structure that we've got now. And quite frankly, I don't have the slightest idea what to do about it. I just, just so I'm sitting here, I'm looking at it, I'm going, this is ugly. Mm-hmm. This is really ugly. And it's, it struck me as the same way as, you know that candidate handbook you get when, you know, you get as here's your handbook to run for candidate, to run for yeah. office. Yeah, just like your three year plan, your two year plan, whatever it is, like every single candidate gets that unless you're like me who run in the short term. Well, and it's fine. There's nothing wrong with it inherently, except when every single candidate does it, then everybody has the same perspective. Everybody has the same power structure behind them. And there's no, there's no way to kind of balance that that out. There's you've got this, everybody has their own little power structures they have to feed that they have to maintain. And the power structure itself has their own power structures to feed and maintain. And it's just this one big whole ugly grift that I don't have the slightest idea what to do about. <laughs> you know, and how do we unwind that? No, I don't know. It's not a question, Oscar. That's just a statement. It's just my rant for the day.
1: <laughs> oh yeah. Don't get me started on mailers. Those are a nightmare to deal with. I had to do a few and it's, I i never realized how expensive they were until like, I have to sign that check, figuratively sign that check for mailers. I'm like, Oh my God, I'm spending how much on them? And then seeing how many I got throughout the campaign from like the Republicans. And I'm like, you know, I'm not voting for you guys, at least some of you guys, because like, county level stuff I met the candidates and I agreed with them so it's like I'm getting all these Trump campaigns Biden stuff and I'm not talking about little postcards like the yeah. whole pamphlet I'm like I know how much those cost <laughs> <laughs> I don't have it.
0: and then they said the same ones three four times a week and from a marketing perspective it makes no sense because you're not if you didn't read it the first time you're not going to read it the second time in the same week if you send it once every 10 days maybe because then you can see it and someone will pick it up. But if you're sending it three, four times a week, they're just throwing it away It does, from a marketing perspective. It's a literally a waste of money. So the question is, and they know it because if I know it, they know it. And so, and so then why are they doing it? And it's payback. It's all the grift.
1: Yeah. yeah it's all the grift. Uh I read them because I just want to see what everyone else was doing. And I was just cringing at some of the stuff that some candidates did. And I'm like, I, I know you. You're not that.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know but, you, and you're you not that. And yeah. it's like, I don't want to do it because I didn't want to do mailers. because I don't want to be associated with that, the toxic nature of those mailers. Those are so toxic. I said, you know, I don't even want to think about the mailers because they're going to get people are going to get mailers. They're going to see my name. They're not going to read the mailers. They're going to assume I'm as toxic as everybody else and just throw it away. <laughs> I'd rather do. We did, you know, the literature drops is kind of what we ended up doing. I did literature drops and and you know, my videos on Facebook and I'm lucky, I get to be on uh, public access every week as a TV host. So, you know, I get a little more uh, name recognition than other people might get. But, and it's grassroots name recognition, it's kind of the best kind you can get. So, so I had, you know, I had some advantages, but still, Oscar, it's been great talking to you. I appreciate you stopping by. We're gonna have to get you on, on the flagship counterpoint one day to sit here and talk about issues of the day. When we can, when we can get your schedule, uh, when we can match schedules on that.
1: Yeah, Um, my schedule's gonna be really (laughs) off now. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah, no, no, and have fun with that. You know, on your uh, your journey through your National Guard, it's you know. Anybody who serves their their community, it's I have a great respect for because I couldn't do it. I'm far too much of a hippie. I, I couldn't do the. I yeah. I couldn't have people telling me what to do all day. <laughs> oh, it's
1: gonna be a discipline for me to do that. But thank you for the support.
0: No, no. I hey, man. It's I know some libertarians can kind of be have uh, mixed feelings on, on military service, even National Guard service. So, but. I think most most people have been happy for you because, you know, found a awesome. direction.
1: Yeah, everyone's been supportive so far. so That's uh, really- good. And if
0: anybody's not supportive, send them my way. I'll take care of them for you. Um. <laughs> all right. Uh, that's all we've got for today, Oscar. Thank you for joining us. Um, you can catch us at, oh, let me get these things up. I completely forgot about banners. I was so interested in our conversation. You can catch us at libertariancounterpoint.com. You can catch the normal podcast at Anchor FM slash Libertarian Counterpoint and the Facebook slash the Libertarian Counterpoint. I don't know why we had to do that. So it is Oscar. It's been great talking to you for everybody else. Thanks for listening. And please remember to love everybody.